0: Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. I was reading in the book of Ephesians and came to that sixth chapter, and there's a popular passage there that you've no doubt heard many times it gets down there to the uh, middle, toward the end of the chapter, and and uh, Paul talks about the theme you have remembered, That uh, the very familiar theme there is, the, the armor of God. Putting on the armor of God. Paul uses the military metaphor many times in Scripture. And he recognizes... That if we're living for God, there is an aspect in which there is a battle going on. And I want to talk about that battle today. The title of my sermon is, What Did You Expect? It's war. Now, part of the problem that I, I anticipate people can have with this is not understanding where that battle really is. I don't want to inspire Christians to become combative to other people. We have to realize where the battle is. I don't like it whenever Christians become militant in this physical world. We have a whole different approach to evangelizing people other than a military mindset. But we absolutely have to be militant when it comes to understanding the spiritual battle that we are engaged in. I'm starting in the 10th verse of that 6th chapter. and The Scripture says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. That word schemes is very important. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That's very, very important. Against the rulers the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And one other word that is critically important in this passage I've read is the very first word, finally. Because whenever he says finally, then it should pique our interest about what precedes his final thoughts, because he's building on that. So we have to kind of Uh, summarize, capsulize the book of Ephesians to understand when he puts this capstone on that we just read the passage, and there's more to the passage as well. And he says, finally, he puts this capstone on some other thoughts he's already shared with the group of people in this Ephesian church. And what a capstone it is as well. It wasn't just winding up with nice little Greek, so-and-so in your church. But he really, he really put his, he saved his big guns for last in this book. So the word finally compels us to refresh our memories about what the entire message of Ephesians is about. Well, in this letter, I, I will briefly summarize what he's told to these people, taught to these people. He said, first of all, this letter contains the concept of what it means to be in Christ. That was and still is to this day a valid and highly important point of instruction for new Christians. When somebody comes to be saved, they don't understand what it means to be in Christ. We have to teach them what it means to be in Christ. Old things are passed away, all things have become new. We begin to encourage them. You start seeking a different style, a lifestyle. You start conferring with God instead of just conferring with your own wisdom. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, Paul spends a lot of time in Ephesians telling them exactly what that is. New believers don't automatically know everything it means to have this new relationship with Jesus Christ. They don't understand immediately what it means that they now have to learn how to listen to the Holy Spirit Gives us guidance every day in everything that we do. They have to practice making their conscience tender to hearing what God has to say to them. They have to learn how to live a life that is pleasing to Christ and not displeasing to the flesh, which they've always served all of their life. They did what they wanted to do, but now they have to do what Christ's, Christ wants them to do. When they get saved, they can't ignore Christ. They can't ignore the Holy Spirit. One of the major things that Paul teaches the recipients in this letter is there is a spiritual dimension around you. That kind of builds up to this last chapter where he then talks about this spiritual dimension. That's something that unsaved people are not aware of. But as a Christian, we need to be keenly aware of being surrounded by things that are happening, activity of the spiritual realm, that otherwise we were unaware of. So Paul heightens that. And he uses this phrase, heavenly places, multiple times in the book of Ephesians. One time when he uses the phrase, he talks about God having elevated Christ to sit with him in heavenly places. But that's the only time he uses that phrase when it refers to what we might say a location. God elevated Jesus Christ to sit in a heavenly place on the throne with him. But the rest of the time that he uses this phrase, heavenly places, it's actually talking about that realm that surrounds us. One commentator says heavenly things, heavenly matters. And so when he's using this phrase about heavenly places, he's talking about this realm that we're unaware of for the most part. But it's that place where the Bible says we entertain angels unawares. Now how many of you are keenly aware of that 24 hours a day? We kind of put that out of our mind, don't we? And I know that, that the word entertain uh, is not the way we would think of it today. But it does, it does bring up a, kind of a, a humorous association that angels are entertained by what I do. I, I, bet, I bet they're getting a big laugh from time to time, out of watching me. Hey, watch him now, what he does. Of course, that's not the original intent of the word entertain. But they're studying us. They're watching us. That's that heavenly realm that he's referring to, that heavenly place. We often tally our blessings by looking at the physical and either saying, my, aren't we blessed, or why aren't we blessed? But Paul reminds us that there is a heavenly place, there is a spiritual realm where many of the blessings are happening, that sometimes we fail to take that into account. And as a matter of fact, he uses that in the book of Ephesians, talking about blessed in heavenly places. Well, I'm not blessed. In a heavenly location, I'm blessed in a spiritual sense. That's what he's saying by using this phrase, blessed in heavenly places. It comes across into the English a little awkward, so we miss it when we read it. So it's a good thing you're here today. We're blessed in heavenly matters. We're blessed in spiritual ways. Now, my wife and I have lots of conversations. Most of it's none of your business. About half the time, what I share with you is none of your business, and I get in trouble. But we have to keep reminding one another that as we're counting our blessings, you can't just look at the physical. We have to remind one another that we tally our blessings by looking at the spiritual as well. And I can tell you, without fail, when we count the blessings of the heavenly places, of the spiritual matters, we'll always come up richer than we thought we were. We are tremendously blessed in spiritual ways. Another major point of the book of Ephesians is the calling of every believer. Paul said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beg you. To lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So every one of you have a purpose. You have a calling. And we are sometimes unaware of that as well. That's another spiritual matter. So Paul says, finally. And I've just given you a very brief overview of Ephesians. But he says, finally. So in view of the fact that we're living in the middle of this massive spiritual realm where there's constant activity that we should be aware of, we have to discipline ourselves to be aware of what's going on around us that we would not normally pay attention to. In view of the fact that we are individuals with a serious calling that requires us to adopt an appropriate lifestyle to that calling, in view of the fact that we are collectively... A church which which that one that's one of the major points that Paul makes in Ephesians as well you're a church and this hasn't really been fully developed in Paul's theology till he got around to talking to the Ephesians about it do you people realize you are a church God took uh two separate groups who were antagonistic toward each other had no respect for one another no use for one another and he put them together in the same room and said get along you will be the church and so the Ephesians have to try and, and process this We're the church. But, but then we miss this important point, too, that the church is not just a church. The church is people. And whenever people come up to me and say, this is what the church ought to be doing, I have every right to say, then you do it. You of the church, it's like they have this concept, the church, some, some ambiguous, I think in the back of their minds, they're, they're using the word church as a metaphor for the, for the pastor. You're the church. And Paul's trying to get them to grasp. The significance of their identity. You're one new man. You're no longer Jew. You're no longer Gentile. You've been brought together. And God has a purpose for you. God has a calling for you. You're a church. So in view of all of this, Paul hopes that they're keeping these concepts in mind. And then he says, and finally, keeping your mind on everything I've taught you, and finally, be strong in the power of the Lord. Be strong in his might. Because you're surrounded by spiritual activity. There is a war that is going on. We've been in this war since the day man was put on earth and fell. We've been in this war, this conflict. It's ongoing. It's, it's, it's ages old. It's thousands of years old. We're in it. We know nothing. Of not being in spiritual war. We're born into it. We live in it. We exit this world exiting out of the war scene. But we conveniently forget about it sometimes. So Paul says finally don't forget in this spiritual realm where you get blessed. Where things happen that we don't pay attention to a lot of times. Don't forget there's a huge war going on. So much so that when you wake up every single day, you dare not get on with life. Except that you appropriately dress yourself for war. The helmet, the shield, having the loins gird, the shoes, everything. You be prepared every single day. I wonder if you're dressing for war every day. Now let me talk about the origin of this conflict. Like countless of wars, countless numbers of wars throughout history, war is about power. It's about control. It's about domination. James even talks about personal conflicts being a control issue. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? You ever wonder? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So there's, there's two levels of control issue here. There's, on the outside, we have conflicts between one another on a personal level because nobody wants to be dominated by the other. We have conflict because we don't like losing an argument. It's about control. It's about power. It's about domination. We don't like to humble ourselves. We don't like to back down. But then he says there's another level in which conflict is going on that's also about power. It's about domination. It's about control. And that's what's going on inside of you every day. As the flesh is battling against the spirit, and it's always a question every day, who is going to win? Is the spirit going to dominate or is the flesh going to dominate? So on two different levels immediately, you see the war is about domination. We have conflicts with our friends, our families, our neighbors, because we have pride that wells up. We don't like ceding territory. We don't like backing down in a confrontation. We don't like being trampled on. We don't like pushy people. with This desire to dominate or not be dominated, at the very least, It's refusal to be dominated, it causes all this conflict. Now that we understand how that works in our personal life, we understand that it works behind every conflict we have. The the disciples of Jesus experienced the same kind of conflict. There was strife among them, it says in the book of Luke. Which of them should be greatest? Now, what's that? That's a matter of power. That's a matter of control. That's a matter of dominance. And that's where all of this tension and strife was coming from. That's where the spiritual war is coming from 14th chapter of isaiah it talks about satan falling he's exalting himself or attempting to desiring to exalt himself above god above the most high and this conflict starts what's it all about domination control power that's the source of this This lust for power. These things are the driving force behind the spiritual war that we are locked in. And Satan's bid for domination didn't end when he was cast out of heaven. His lust for power continues to fuel this war. He hates God. He hates the people of God. He wants to win control in every possible way. This, my friend, is all-out war. And we're locked in this conflict that has spanned the history of man and will continue until the very end of our existence here on earth. The theater of this war, this dark world. It was not by accident that he described this world as this Dark world. There was a commentary right there that he slipped in. His opinion of this world: it's a dark world. Dark is a metaphor for evil. Okay, light is a metaphor for good. We're the light. We're supposed to be light, like a city set on the hill. This is light versus darkness. The metaphor is quite obvious and has been used uh, quite often as well. But the, the Paul calls this a dark world. It, it, an age when the world was in an age when the world was far less populated than today. And so therefore, there was not the volume of wickedness in this world because there wasn't the volume of inhabitants. It was still a dark world because it's not dark by the number of people that are in the world. It's dark because of the depths of sin that any man can fall to. Shortly after the creation, it didn't take long Man inhabiting earth here. For there to come wickedness, darkness, evil into the hearts of men. Within the lifetime of Adam. The very human being who was in the garden. Who walked and talked with God. The man who was there and saw it all. Within his own lifetime. He saw society become so corrupt. And so wicked that the things that they did, and you don't need a history lesson today, were so vile and so wicked they rival anything that you see today. We think we're more wicked than we've ever been before. Satan didn't wait to save his worst wickedness for the last days. All we're seeing is more of it. The man has been just as wicked from the beginning in the filthy and disgusting things that he would do in the face of God dark world. That's the arena of our battle. It's right here. Number three, know the enemy. It says in the 12th verse, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, what I said is I don't want you to get bogged down in trying to Understand what's the difference between a ruler and an authority and a power of darkness and a spiritual force of evil. Don't even worry about that. That is insignificant as far as we're concerned. What we're looking at is the fact that Paul intimated that this is a very well-organized power structure. That's all you need to know about that. This is not sloppy. They have, they have levels. They have different stages and and classes of powers that are going on. And there's no way for us to really effectively bring each one of those separately over into our culture so we can understand what they were. It doesn't matter. They're organized. They have a leader. They have people under the leader. They have authorities. It's, it's, It's very sophisticated. And not only that, they're not shooting from the hip. They're very methodical, and that's the word schemes that I told you about when I read the opening scripture. You're, beware of the King James Version, wiles of the devil, schemes of the devil, strategies of the devil. So it's, it's very methodical. He's not going at you haphazard. He's planning very carefully how to defeat you. I wonder if you're planning as carefully how not to be defeated. One side is putting everything into the effort to defeat you. Are you responding to that accordingly? Or are you just surviving every day? Are you playing just defense, run and hide? Because the enemy is serious about this. How serious are you about surviving? How serious are you about fighting back? Now, the reason that I'm cautious about this whole military issue, as I alluded to at the very beginning of my sermon, is because I don't want us to misunderstand who the enemy is. I have friends from fellow pastors to uh, Bible school theologians, everything in between. I have friends, some of whom really don't like any military terms being used connected with our Christianity. They're uncomfortable because they know that there have been times in the history of the church when we have become a military machine rather than a soul-saving station. There are times when people have become... Too militant in instead of a evangelistic. We aren't called, you can ask our missionaries here today, handy that we have them here. We aren't called to go in and change governments. We're called to change people. We're not called to go in and arm them, the locals, with how to overtake their government, no matter how despotic. That's not our calling. We're, To arm them with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word. That's what Paul will say here in just a little bit. We arm them in a different way because we realize who the enemy is. It's highly important we keep that in mind. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We have to be clear on this. People are pawns used by the enemy. They are not the enemy. They are the victims. They are the casualties in the war. But I see this military metaphor as very, very fitting and very appropriate if we remember who we're fighting and where the war is in this heavenly realm, being surrounded by all of this activity that's going on. We are fighting a spiritual war. We're not fighting a political battle, even though I see the church toying with the idea of trying to fight politically. That, there's, there's no lasting value to trying to win political battles. That changes with the, with the change of, of uh, the politician who sits in Washington. You can win it for a year or two years. Might win it for four years. You might win it for eight years. But you can't win the spiritual battles by, by uh, launching political battles, fighting political battles, even though wickedness is most certainly manifested in different places. We're not fighting a social battle even though the works of darkness have permeated our society and have brought great ruin in, we're not fighting a social battle. We're fighting a spiritual battle. I may not like what a person has done who was working on behalf of the powers of darkness, but he's not my enemy. She's not my enemy. And I can't win the battle by focusing uh, against that person. I have to keep focused on who they are working for, who has sent them. The best way to win a spiritual battle where physical people are involved is to win them to your side. Then you've won the battle. Paul knew this. He and Silas were going about preaching, and a most fascinating thing happened. As this demon-possessed slave girl started following them around, And decided to attach herself to their ministry. And she began to cry out wherever Paul and Silas were. She would say, these men are servants of the Most High God. And they're telling you the way to be saved. Now the reason I find that so fascinating is that's the truth. And it comes from a demon possessed girl. Hell is preaching the truth. Don't you find that odd? What do you do with that? I know as a pastor, I have gained a lot of experience through the years in how to deal with various situations. But that's a doozy. You've got the good news, the truth, being preached by a demon-possessed person. I'm glad I haven't personally had to face that as a pastor yet, even though, on second thought. So Paul initially ignores it. But the Bible says it went on for days. This wasn't somebody that just showed up and, and for one day or one tent meeting decided to help them out. Some people, you just don't need their help. You know what I mean? And the next day, Paul and Silas got up, went to another part of town, and here comes the girl! Day three, they moved to another part of town. Here comes the girl. These men are preaching the word of the Most High God and how to get saved. And about the fourth or fifth day, it finally became apparent Paul was annoyed. And he said to Silas, we've got to do something. At first, you just kind of pass it off because everybody has a few weird people attached themselves. from You just you live with it. But this is beyond weird. Now she's beginning to associate what we're doing with the powers of hell, which is very clear to people she's not quite right. You don't want people quite right being your front people. (laughs) It doesn't work well. And she's over there screaming. She's the loudest. She's the billboard. She's the neon lights. She's the, the demon-possessed slave girl telling them how wonderful Paul and Silas are. And they said, we don't need this association. And so he turns around and he casts the demon out of her. Now he's got another problem because th- th- this was somebody's asset. <laughs> this was somebody's investment. And he took away the asset. Now they're mad at him. Sometimes you just can't win. And of course, from a pastoral perspective, Sometimes you have to deal with people that they might be doing the right thing and they might be saying the right thing, but they've got the wrong spirit. I know our missionary, you, you've had to be in ministry long enough and been enough places where that becomes a difficulty. And the most difficult part about it is is nobody else can see it. <laughs> How do you deal with it? Because you're going to divide people. The minute you do, you've got a, a bunch of people saying, oh, they're wonderful people. They're so nice people. They're doing, what are they doing wrong? And you try to explain to somebody's satisfaction, it's not what they're doing. It's not what they're saying. The spirit is wrong. They say, well, I can't see it. Of course you can't. I, I've wandered too far off. But the enemy was not the demon-possessed girl. She needed to be set free. See, Paul didn't call fire down on her to destroy her. He delivered her. You have to know who the enemy is. The enemy, the real enemy, Satan and his cohorts and his whole organization that goes along with the spiritual darkness, the powers, the authorities, this whole mess. Satan Uses different methods. Be aware of this. Be the schemes of the devil. He doesn't just have one, he's got all kinds. Strategies. The Holman Christian Bible says tactics. They all point to this one truth. Satan's methodical. And he attacks on different fronts. You don't have to stand up. You don't raise your hand. But if you'll just wince when I get to yours. He uses these kind of tactics. He uses discouragement. He uses temptations like power, money, sex, popularity. He uses hardship, trials, difficulties, persecution. He uses slander It's one of his tools. He uses deceit, allurement, and enticement. He uses traps and the element of surprise, like Joseph never is approached by that godless woman who said my husband's gone why don't we the element of surprise what will you do without warning when you're attacked like that he uses distractions and these are all the tricks and schemes and things he uses i said people were in war I've just told you a few of the things that the enemy is trying to use to trip you up, to discourage you, to make you lay it down and walk away and say, I'm tired of all this Christian stuff and you've got all of your excuses why you're tired of it and you're sick of it and you tried it and you didn't get along. I'm telling you, the enemy is pummeling you with all of these things trying to get you to quit. When you quit, he wins. We're in a war. He uses different disguises. Sometimes he can appear as an angel of light. That's that's pure deception. Uh, In another way, the Bible says he walks about like a roaring lion. That's a total different approach than being an angel of light. He goes about seeking whom he may devour. And sometimes he looks just like your closest friends. Jesus turned to Peter, who was getting in his way. And spoke to Peter, yet realizing he was being used by the wrong forces. And said, get thee behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Number four. Our involvement in this war. Now you have to go back to the third chapter of Ephesians. Because when Paul said finally, he really was building on his message to the Ephesian church. And he he planted this Powerful little verse there in the third verse that he just kind of pinned it to the wall. He said, I'll come back and get this after a while. But he picked it up in the sixth chapter. And in the third chapter, this is this little nugget he planted there. He said that through the church, remember I told you he taught the Ephesians what it means to be the church. And then he refers to the church. He said, through the church, through you people, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and the powers in heavenly places remember I told you the heavenly places that spiritual realm that surrounds us and he dropped that right there and didn't enlarge on it till he got over to the sixth chapter but he tipped his hand this interesting verse This mystery that he was talking about. What is this mystery? He said the mystery is that God designed the church to be that agency through whom he would demonstrate his multifaceted wisdom to. And this is the interesting part about it as well. Not just to the world. He was going to demonstrate it and prove his wisdom to these powers that we've been talking about, that Paul talked more about in that sixth chapter, uh, the powers of uh, principalities, the powers in the heavenly places. God's answer to the powers of darkness, do you get it now, is the church. He said, I will use the church to prove I'm not a fool. I will manifest my wisdom to those powers that are taunting me. Those powers that are taunting my people. Those powers that keep on fighting like they think they're going to win this war. I've got a secret weapon. And the world laughs at the secret weapon. And the prince of uh, uh, the powers of the air laugh at the secret weapon. And the authorities and the dominions, they laugh at the secret weapon. But, But the Bible says, Paul says, God's Wisdom is going to be proven through the church. Now that causes me mixed emotions. Because sometimes I look around and I laugh. You've got to be kidding me, God. The state that I see the church in, you're going to use that to push back the spiritual forces? I have deep concerns. I wonder sometimes, Lord, has this gotten out of hand? Have you lost control of your plan? You anticipated there would be a church that would exist in the 21st century that would do battle against the powers of darkness, and I think they're sick. I have serious concerns about whether we're up to the task. Has this been a foolish tactic on the part of God? Well, I tell you this. I sometimes see segments of the church working for the wrong side. I sometimes see churches that are helping to spread the darkness instead of shine the light. I sometimes see the church wearing the wrong uniform. I sometimes see them carrying the wrong banner. They're carrying the wrong banner for the enemy. I see them fraternizing with the enemy. I see them fighting amongst themselves instead of banding together to fight against the real enemy. But I'll tell you this if the powers of darkness are gaining a ground, it is the church's fault. We have not been designed to seed ground. Through the powers of darkness. God designed us for something higher and stronger and better than that. But the good news is this. In spite of the things that I see about the church that I worry sometimes. I have deep concerns. I'm convinced God did not make a tactical error in appointing the church to defy the powers of darkness. There might be times. There might be instances. There might be ages when we think the church has lost the battle or lost their vision or lost their focus. But we are ultimately concerned with the outcome of the war. God did not make a wrong choice. He knew he would work with flawed people. He knew he would work with a church that would go through its times of advancing and retreating. He knew that. He knew there would be a bad soldier from time to time. He knew that a battalion would go bad once in a while. He knew there would be an age when the church would go into darkness. He knew there would be defectors along the way. But God is going to manifest his manifold wisdom to the power of darkness through his church because he said he's going to do that and to the world it looks like foolishness and to the power of darkness they think they've got the church on the run and it looks like foolishness but God will not be humiliated he will not regret his choice the church I believe with all of my heart in spite of its failures in spite of its faults in spite of its failings I do believe it's going to rise up and demonstrate the wisdom of God to the rules of darkness And I believe God knew exactly what He was doing when He chose the church to be His agent. It is high time, people, that we become the church God called us to be because we have the advantage. Let's put on the armor, make sure we're dressed appropriately. Let's put on the helmet of salvation. I don't want to put on the helmet of social interaction. I don't want to put on the helmet of political muscle. I don't want to put on the helmet of social justice. I want to put on the helmet of salvation. I want to put on the breastplate of righteousness. What I, I remind you again is not the breastplate of good works. It's not the breastplate of compromise. It is the breastplate of righteousness. Have your loins girded with truth. Not... Girded with popular feel-good messages of self-improvement. Not girded with flaky doctrines. Not girded with feel-good sermons for people with itching ears. But with no-nonsense, hard-hitting, in-your-face truth. That's what we're to be girded with. Carrying the shield of faith. A church cowering behind the rocks because they fear the giants is just not being the church. We need to trust God with that shield of faith that it will quench the flaming darts of the enemy. A thousand shall fall by thy side and ten thousand by thy right hand. It shall not come nigh thee. Wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. What else do you need? Now, this was only... A part of the typical armament of those days. Military people in those days, they could have had uh, a javelin, they could have had a mace, arrows, and bow, slings, all kinds of things that went along with this. We need the sword of the Spirit. We need a return to the Word of God. I am deeply disturbed that there is a dearth of the preaching of the Word of God in the 21st century. I've listened to a number of sermons that are available today. And if you are feasting on the Word of God, you'll starve to death. There's a lot of strategies and a lot of quotable quotes, and a lot of paragraphs out of popular books. But there is a dearth of the Word of God in the land. And you can't win battles with that kind of stuff. It has to be the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There's a dearth in the American pulpit. We've played fast and loose with the Word of God, and the American church is now in trouble because of it. It's because pastors are too lazy to give birth to a weekly sermon fresh from the throne of God that we're in trouble. It's because pastors can download their latest sermon from sermon.com instead of downloading it from heaven that the American church is in trouble. It's because young pastors are more enchanted with books on how to grow to your church than the black book on how to grow your people. That the American church is in trouble. It's because people clamor to hear feel-good sermons instead of being confronted with the truth. It's because people will go somewhere else when they're confronted with truth where they can feel comfortable and cozy. They want to be humored. They want to be entertained. They just don't want to be convicted. We've lost our sword. We need the sword of the Spirit. We need a passionate return to the Word of God. Feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now the armor is divided into two varieties. Defensive for protection, which is commonly what we focus on. You know, of all these things that Paul says we should be equipped with, it's all for our protection except the sword. And that's that's offense. That's attacking. That's going after it. That's fighting this or Not just hiding. Not just cowering down. That's going after it. We have a sword. What will defeat the powers of Satan? The word of God. David came out from behind the rocks where the Israelites were hunkered down and had this little sling in his hand. It, it didn't. I'm, I'm going to tell you people, it didn't matter what he had in his hand. I promise you. He could have had a pea shooter. It didn't matter. He came out, in essence, with something that was totally inadequate for the job in his hand. What he came out with in his heart was adequate for what had to be done. So here comes this little shepherd boy out with his toy Facing this giant, and the giant had the armor, he had the spear. David couldn't even lift the spear, much less throw it at anything. He he had everything. David said, you come to me, you're twice my size. No, this is the prepubescent, David. You come to me with your sword and your spear and your javelin. your buzzard meat. You come to me. And you've got armor, you got sword, you got spear, you got javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. That's all he needed. That's all he needed. That's all he needed. He didn't need a spear. He didn't need a sword. He needed the power of God in his life. I come to you in the name of the Lord. We're already in the battle, people. But I wonder if you're willing to do battle. I wonder if you got your armor on. And I wonder if you're ready to go. Worship team, come.